Welcome back to the podcast. This is Charlotte Craven, Technical Director here at Evidence for Faith. And if it's your first time listening to the podcast, every Tuesday and Friday, we switch between two different studies. And on Tuesdays right now, we are doing the Archaeology of Daniel, where we're looking at different artifacts that help us understand and see how Daniel did really happen. So today for this series, actually, if you want to see the video version where you can see a replica of a lot of these artifacts that we're talking about, you can check out the link in the description that will send you to our webpage with all the video versions of the uh, episodes in the series. So, but before we jump into it, I want to let you guys know about our Israel 2023 trip, which is going to be a biblical archaeology tour with Dr. Stephen Notley, an archaeologist and biblical scholar down in Israel, and our very own Michael Lane, who will be leading this trip. So if you would like to uh, join us on this trip and go see some of the sites of where all this history happened, um, you can check out the links in the description to look at pricing, dates, and all that good stuff and tour information. So, um, as always, this program is supported by listeners just like you. If you'd like to help support the program, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org give. That's evidence, the number four of faith.org give. And with that, here is Michael and the next episode of Archaeology of Daniel, the Nabonidus Chronicle. Hi, welcome to Evidence for Faith. It's your host, Michael Lane. I'm so glad you're joining me today as we're continuing our study here on the archaeology of Daniel. And this is a fascinating study with great artifacts and stuff that have been found because the book of Daniel has frequently been attacked by critics. And, and even, I'm so sad to say this, even some liberal pastors, uh, they say and they preach that this is a fable that the book of Daniel was not written even close to the time of Daniel, uh, that Daniel would have lived if they say he would, because many people say that he's a mythical person. Um, they say that there's many errors in this book, that it's, it's not supported by archaeology, or really they say a lot that it's not supported by history. Well, uh, if you examine the archaeological evidence, which is what we're doing, that's the purpose of, of this series in this ministry that we're doing here. If you look at the archaeological pillar here, the history of Daniel and the artifacts that we find, you're going to find that the, uh, the condemnations that, that people make about this book are totally unfounded. Um, it, this is an amazing book. And it's one that we should be studying today because it has so much prophecy in it about the end times. I know a lot of people say, oh, let's study Revelation, study end times. Oh, even Jesus in Matthew uh, 24, verse 15. What did Daniel say, talking about the coming of Christ? Need to look at Daniel. Now, one of the most critically denounced stories in the entire book of Daniel is found in chapter 5. And most people are familiar with this. It's the one with the handwriting on the wall, which took place during a feast held by this king called Belshazzar. And now right there is where we start to lose uh, some of the critics because they'll say, okay, there never was this king Belshazzar. Well, first of all, let's just go to Daniel chapter five. Let's look at the first four verses and see what actually Daniel writes. So um, we're doing this out of the English Standard Version, so you can follow along, um, or just listening if you're just listening, and because um, we're going to have it also on the screen here. But here we go. Daniel 5, verses 1 through 4 reads, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, 
commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken from out of the uh, out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood and stone. So there's there's your first four verses of this famous chapter uh, that we're looking at. And it's a fascinating thing because Daniel's writing that Belshazzar, first of all, Belshazzar is the king of Babylon on the night that Babylon fell. If you continue with the story, Babylon falls at night. The way this chapter ends, Babylon falls. And that Belshazzar was the king of the night that the city fell. Though history, if you just go back and you study history, and this is what history taught for centuries, is that the, the last king of Babylon was a king named Nabonidus. Nabonidus was the last ruling king of the Babylonian Empire when General Gubaru, also known as Ugbaru, Ug under Cyrus the Great, conquered the city itself. And for centuries, there was no known King Belshazzar in Babylonian history. So because from what the Greeks wrote about the history of Babylon and its fall, they never mentioned Belshazzar. And because of that, and we based a lot of our history, ancient history and stuff, off what the, the um, Herodotus and other uh, Greek historians wrote, there's no mention of Belshazzar. So people have said this is a total myth, that there is no Belshazzar um, because there never was a Belshazzar who was the last king. The last king was Nabonidus. Thus, Daniel is wrong. Daniel, this book is a fable. Well, that's not what archaeology is now showing us. No, not at all. <clears throat> you see, in the mid-1800s, back about the time of the American Civil War, a clay artifact with cunea writing was discovered um, in what is today Iraq, and it was sold to an antique dealer. Now, this clay uh, artifact, um, it has writing on both sides, as you can see with this replica we have of it, because the original's in uh, a museum in London, but there's cunea writing. You can see it's quite weathered. It's very old. This actually dates back to around 549 to about 486 BC. So this is a very, very old document. Um, and it's written in clay. Uh, what would be fun is to put like you know, a sheet of paper over it and charcoal over the top of it to be able to read it or whatever. But they would actually press this into clay and to get an impression is the way this was done. But anyway, this was found and the writing on here is uh, cuneiform, which was a Babylonian style of writing. But in, um, and it was, like I say, found back around the time of the American Civil War. In 1879, scholars representing the British Museum, which is where this thing is stored today, um, they bought it from this antique dealer, but they, they really didn't know what was on it. Uh, they knew that there was writing. You could see there's writing, but it really wasn't studied. It was quite dirty. They didn't even clean it up and study it for a while. But in 1879, they started to look at this very carefully. And then the next year, it was actually cleaned and translated by Sir Henry Rawlinson, who did a lot of these things with Babylonian and Assyrian work. And in 1882, so the year 1882, it was translated 
from the cuneiform into English, which you can actually download on the internet. If you type in the Nabonidus Chronicle, which is what this is, it's called the Nab Nabonidus Chronicle, and you can see actually in many sites, you will see translations of this. Um, it was translated into English and published by Theophilus Pitchard, um, Pinches, who uh, translated in a, in a a paper that he wrote called The Transactions of the Society for Biblical Archaeology. And that's when it was first put into English and published that way. Uh, Pinches was known for doing a lot of translating and stuff. So this fragment is actually, you can see it's broken on the edges. It's not totally complete. Sections of it have been broken off. We're not sure how large it would have been, uh, but it does have writing on both sides, as you can see. And the, um, the artifact itself, as I said, we have no idea how big it was, but what is on here is fascinating because what it has, it talks about the fall of Babylon. What we just read about Daniel in Daniel chapter 5, is described on this thing. You see, this ancient chronicle agrees with what the famous Greek historian Herodotus, what he wrote, and as we mentioned before, that King Nabonidus was indeed the last ruling king of the Babylonian Empire. Now you might be saying, well, my, Michael, you just, you just said something that goes against the book of Daniel. Oh, hold on, hold on. This Because this is so cool, what you're going to see here. Because this shocked the world when this thing was discovered, and they started translating this like, whoa! The critics of Daniel are like, whoa, we got to take a step back here. Because it does mention Nabonidus was indeed the last ruling king of the Babylonian Empire. And it also contains some fascinating details concerning how the city of Babylon actually fell to, to Cyrus the Great. It's, it's written on here. It, it contains, this is a fascinating document because it contains a year-by-year -year account of the events of King Nabonidus. It informs the reader who, who's reading this thing. It, it takes tells you going from one space into the other in time what's going on in the empire to be totally honest when you read the whole translation of this front and back you're going to see it doesn't paint nabonidus in the best picture it doesn't it records him in a lot of ways in a very very negative way this is definitely not a promotion um, he's not going to put this out as his resume let me say for for trying to get a job because it doesn't portray him really well this chronicle though is a major tool because we find out about the rise of Cyrus the Great and how he rose to power, it's all described in here. Now, one major theme, and there's quite a few things in here. One major theme written throughout this chronicle is that when Nabonidus became king of Babylon, he became engrossed in one specific god of the Chaldeans. Now, the Chaldeans were polytheistic. They had a lot of different gods. Their primary god for most of the Chaldeans, um, going back for thousand years was a, um, this god named Marduk. Marduk was the primary god of Babylon. But Nabonidus, for some unknown reason, though it's described on this chronicle, Nabonidus decided not to worship Marduk as the chief god of the Babylonians instead, and the Chaldeans. What he decided was he was going to pick the god Sin, S-I-N, Sin as the chief god. Now, the thing is, Babylon was the primary city and the host city of Marduk. So this didn't go over too well with the citizens of Babylon, that their chief god has been demoted and a secondary god, Sin, has been elevated into a higher position. So it didn't go well with the subjects. 
it didn't go well at all because he was forced to flee the city. Now, they, they, he still was the king of the empire, but not in Babylon. Um, there's still a lot of cities, a lot of other capitals and stuff in the empire that he could go and rule from. And he does this. And he leaves Babylon because of what he's done with the religion there. Uh, he removes Marduk as the chief god. So he um, flees and, and goes to live and rules the entire empire from another city. The one he seemed to favor the most is one in Arabia called uh, Tiamat. And Tiamat, he sort of sets up his, his throne there. But here's where it's interesting. What this chronicle tells us, that when Nabonidus left Babylon, Babylon is the largest city of the empire. This is the key place. When he left Babylon, he just couldn't leave it unruled. So he appointed his oldest son, Belshazzar. This is what it says on here. Belshazzar, the crown prince, as being the new ruler of Babylon. Thus, he is ruling Babylon, like is the king. Now, Nabonidus is the ruler of the whole empire, but who is overseeing all of the um, all of the kingly duties and stuff of Babylon, the city itself? Belshazzar. So we found, when this thing was discovered, this you understand how big of an item this was? When they found this, critics of the Bible that said there never was a Belshazzar, Belshazzar was never a guy, he was never ruling, obviously, since he didn't exist in Babylon, yet this artifact, this beautiful artifact actually lists his name right on here and in certain places, and it talks about that he is now ruling in Babylon, even though Nabonidus is still the king. Now, this brings up a whole other point from the book of Daniel. You see, this point alone answers some questions that we will see that Daniel, uh, the critics of the book of Daniel, particularly chapter 5, have. Um, and it's, let's go back and take a look at what is in Daniel chapter 5. And as we said already, and we read, Belshazzar's holding a feast and celebrating with the holy items taken out of Solomon's temple. And um, they're celebrating, it's a drunken orgy basically taking place here and then during this time when they're feasting and stuff according to the book of daniel this disembodied hand uh with just fingers and stuff appears and starts writing on the wall and he writes three curious words on the wall well no one in in the place they see this the king sees it he is petrified with fear when this happens and when you just start seeing a him it's like a stephen king novel starting to turn in you know this is this is crazy and scary. So the people are all alarmed by, remember, there's a thousand people here. So they're all alarmed because they see this. Uh, the problem is, you know, Belshazzar says, who can, who can tell me what it means? No one could. No one was able to interpret the meaning. So Belshazzar is getting more and more desperate, looking for help. So he's asking people, he can't find anybody to answer his question, but he says, I'll, I'll, I'll do this. Anyone who can read and interpret this meaning for me, because he knew it was something from the gods. There's no question about it. He knew something serious and very scary was about to happen. Anybody who can interpret this for me uh, and tell me the meaning, I will make him, are you ready? The third ruler of the kingdom. Third ruler. See, now here is where a puzzle has come. Now, let's, let's take a look, first of all, at the Bible. What does the Bible actually say at this? And in Daniel chapter 5, we're at verse 7. It's, it reads, The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple 
and have a gold chain around his neck and shall be the third ruler of the kingdom. Now see, here has always been a puzzle. I remember as a kid this puzzling me. Why would whoever does, um, performs this act, why would he be the third ruler? Why wouldn't he be the second ruler? Doesn't make sense. Who is the second ruler if he can only be the third ruler? And I've actually remember sitting in sermons and stuff in the past as a child and even as an adult where pastors have struggled with this, that they didn't quite understand this thing. Well, if we go back and we look at what archaeology shows us, we can find the answer because this all fits the Bible perfectly, what we read. You see, this chronicle begins to add to our understanding of the book of Daniel. King Nabonidus, as we just mentioned before, is not in Babylon. He's ruling from the other, you know, from Arabia, really far away. That's where he's at. He's in Timia. He's not even around when the city falls. But he has proclaimed his son, the crown prince, to be in charge, to oversee the capital, if you will, of Babylon. So he's the one who's basically the second ruler. Nabonidus is the first ruler. Belshazzar, the crown prince, is now ruling as the king of the city, and he is the second ruler. He gets this now? So this chronicle answers the puzzle as to how can whoever reads this thing be the third ruler in the kingdom? It's simple. Nabonidus was first, Belshazzar was second, Belshazzar can proclaim the next person the third ruler. You see, it all becomes clear. Why did it become clear? Well, for one, the Bible says it. Right there, we should have faith enough alone to believe it. But some people, they need a little nudge. That's why this ministry is here, to help people to see there is evidence to support the Bible. And in this pillar here, we're doing history and archaeology by finding this absolutely amazing find, this Nabonidus Chronicle. We find out that Nabonidus was the, rule, the first ruler, Belshazzar was the second ruler of Babylon, and who Whoever would be proclaimed to do this would be the third. It all makes sense. Now, Daniel's name does not appear anywhere on here. It's not mentioned. But it does tell us more. We're not done yet. This chronicle is not complete in yielding information of what happened in Babylon as Babylon fell. According to the Bible, Babylon fell. Now, this is an amazing thing. Babylon fell without a fight in one evening, in one night, at the hand of Darius the Mede. That's who conquered it. Matter of fact, let's go to the Bible and let's read what did Daniel actually write down about this. So in Daniel chapter 5, we're going to skip down now to verses 29 through 31 as we read this. And it reads, Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, and a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. So here we see some interesting things. And just on a side note, why clothed in purple? Purple was very hard to make as a color and dye clothing and stuff. It basically came from a type of a seashell, um, murex, um, and some other mollusks that are found in the Mediterranean. It was very difficult and very expensive to make the color purple. So purple was more, because it was so expensive, it was the color for royalty. That's why it's like that. 
Uh, gold, of course, it signifies it's the most precious of the metals, particularly of the ancient times. It was the most precious, so that's why it's like that. But now, let's get back to this. According to this chronicle, what we have here, the chronicle, the Nebonidus chronicle, according to this chronicle, the elderly Gobirus, Gobirus was his name, Gobirus, also called um, Ugbaru, he was a general of the Medes, and he conquers the city. And he becomes the governor, serving Cyrus the Great as he conquered the city. Now, that is what is recorded on the Nabonidus uh, Chronicle here. Now, many scholars believe, and here's where it gets a little, a little hard to understand because we don't have all the clues to this. Many scholars believe that Darius the Mede is the Hebrew name for Golbryrus. We, we don't know. He does seem to fit some of the historical record as it stands today. But much of the history is still unclear. Al, we've found so little with archaeology, and as we've said so many times in our series, um, and just in our ministry, there's never been one archaeological, provable archaeological discovery that disproves the Bible. Not one, but there's tens of thousands that have been found that support the Bible, but we've only uncovered not even 10% of the archaeology, they estimate, that's buried out there. So we haven't got all of the clues, but every clue that we keep getting keeps showing that the Bible is real and is true. Now that's remarkable in this. So many scholars believe that Darius the Mede, or Darius if you wish, that he was Gobryrus, that he was the person who did this, but we don't know for sure. We do know that Gobryrus died of natural causes about a month after the fall of Babylon. So he didn't live very long. He was um, an older person when it happened, but um, he dies very soon. And now because of that, they say, well, you have the story of Darius the Mede and Daniel in the lion's den. So if he dies just a month or so after, like about six weeks after the fall of Babylon, um, there's not time for the book of um, chapter uh, six of Daniel to take place. Actually, that's not true. I mean, just like a month and a half, six weeks, is enough time for the events that take place in Daniel chapter six to occur. It is possible, time-wise. Um, we just don't know because we're never told who this this guy is, who this um, Darius the Mede is. Um, but it is possible that it could be this person. There's a lot of theories out there. They're all theories at this point. We just don't have the archaeological evidence. All I know is this. The Bible is showing to be true in every single circumstance, so I'm going to believe in the Bible. When archaeology keeps popping up and showing us little clues that support the Bible, hey, it just adds to our faith. Uh, there is another popular view, I should tell you, that um, of, of who Daniel calls Darius the Mede, that it might not be a name, that the name Darius might not actually be a name, but a title, a title who could have been for Cyrus the Great. This is an interesting theory, uh, and it is just a theory, but let me explain to you that there is some basis to this. We know from history that Darius is used to describe uh, during the Persian Empire, five different Persian rulers, five, and they all have the same name, Darius. Now, could it be, as some scholars have proposed, is it possible that Darius is the title for such a ruler and not a proper name? That it's a title. For instance, we, this happens all through history and through the Bible we see this. Uh, Pharaoh. Who is Pharaoh? Pharaoh is not the name of a person. I mean, there's Ramses, there's Seti, um, there's 
um, Tukakaman, there's um, Tut Moses, there's a bunch of these guys. But the thing is, they all carry the title Pharaoh. It was used by the Egyptians. Jabin. Jabin, which is mentioned also uh, in Joshua chapter 11 and also in Judges chapter 4, Jabin is not the name, the proper name of a person. We know from archaeological records and also from the Bible that the, uh, the title Jabin was used by the Canaanites, who served as the king of Canaan at Hatzor, was called a Jabin. That was his thing. Um, we see this again in um, a king uh, title, uh, Agag, who was used by uh, the Amalekites, they used that title. The Philistines had their own title for their kings. They didn't call them kings. They called them uh, a, a Serenim. Serenim is the person who was the king. These are not proper names. So because we see this, and there are many more examples we can give. Because of this, is it possible that Darius is actually a title and not a name? We don't know. There's not enough evidence out there to make it, but it is an interesting hypothesis. Um, so there's just not enough archaeology has been discovered to fill in all the gaps on this. But so far, everything that's filling in really fits what the Bible has. Another interesting detail found in this chronicle that we see here, this Nabonidus Chronicle, is that Gobirus uh, instituted officials. It actually says this, that he institutes when he conquers the city. Um, it mentions in here that Gobirus actually institutes officials. He picks officials to rule like as sort of like governors or city officials or regional officials. And then he picks three chief ones, three chief officials to be over the entire empire, the entire kingdom. Well, this sort of fits well, again, with what we read in Daniel. In Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, what do we read now? This is right after the fall of Babylon. This is the very next event now taking place. And it reads, um, this is chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over, though, over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom the satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. So what this is saying is, Gobirus, well, the Bible is saying that Darius, whoever this Darius is, he divides up the region into 120 sections. And each one, he appoints somebody. Then he takes three people, and none of these names, none of these are named on the chronicle. But it is told, it is said on the chronicle itself, it is reading on the chronicles that, that he is setting up three officials to oversee the other ones. So that fits right with the Bible. And it doesn't mention names, but according to the Bible, Daniel was one of the three, as we know. And because of the jealousy of their two, they make up trumped up charges. And we go into the, the next story and prophecy having to do with Daniel here. But it's fascinating that what we're reading in the Bible in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, is recorded in the Nabonidus Chronicle. It has the same event taking place. This is fascinating. So another detail recorded on the Chronicle is that the city would fall, and well, that it did fall, and the way that it, it fell is really interesting. Because the Greeks wrote um, how the city of Babylon fell. Babylon was a massive city. It was the most strongly and 
impenetrable city in the world. Uh, back in ancient times, the way you conquered a city is you cut off the water supply. It was one of the major ways. Well, Babylon was built right on a river flowing through the city. And you might think, well, then if there's a river flowing through it, what good are the walls? Because people could take boats and stuff. There were iron bars that came down where the water was to go down to block any invaders to come into to the city through the river. They were protected with iron bars. Um, the city, according to the Greeks, the walls of the city were over 300 feet high. That's a honking tall wall. And it was massively wide. Um, chariots could ride around up on top of the walls all the way around, the Greeks tell us. So it was a massive city. But it was, it was also considered impenetrable because it had enough food inside the city to last for years uh, plus they had water and they had food stored up in case of invasion and they would be surrounded. So apparently, as the um, chapter 5 of Daniel tells us, the city was surrounded. There's a drunken feast going on. They're not even concerned because the city was impenetrable. The people could not get into the city. So they had this drunken feast on a holiday and everybody in the city was drunk, including the king. And so that's what's going on. But according to Greek historians and what is recorded on this tablet, we read that Gobirus commanded a canal to be dug all the way around the city to divert the water from going through the city to go around it. And the people are drunk as this is taking place. When the canal is finished and the water is diverted, the, um, the river going through the city is down and the people then the soldiers the enemy walked into the city not through the gates but through the riverbed is what the greeks tell us and they came in they opened the gates and everybody was drunk there was not even a battle that took place the people were so drunk as they came in gobirus did this it's recorded in on this tablet that this takes place that while they were celebrating to their drunken gods on this holiday, Gobirus troops enters through the riverbed unopposed and they took the city. It fits very easily the biblical account how Babylon fell, because many people wonder, how could a city that big fall in one night? Well, it's exactly what this thing is describing, exactly what did happen. Babylon did fall in one night. So it's a fascinating artifact. It shows so many interesting things pertaining to the Bible. It doesn't give us all the clues, uh, like names and stuff. It doesn't give us many of the, that type of detail. But the events that are mentioned in the Nabonidus Chronicle fit so perfectly with the Bible. It's just amazing that we have this. So believing the Bible, we should be able to believe the Bible just because of faith. But some people... There's nothing against this. Some people just need a little more edge, a little kick in the pants, you might say, to help them to, to really believe, truly believe that the Bible is real. That's why we have this pillar of history and archaeology. Now, wasn't this fascinating, what we found about this? And there's more to come as we continue in this series and, and see more of these artifacts and showing how Daniel is true and the events are described in here because archaeology points directly to it. So thanks for joining me. Um, until we meet again, take care and may God bless.
Thanks for tuning in, and thank you to our donors who make this program possible. Evidence for Faith is a 501c3 nonprofit ministry based in the USA. You can support this broadcast by donating online using the links in the description. And don't forget to leave us a comment, a review, likes, and shares to feed the algorithm and help others find this content. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.